Look at 2020, how much time did everybody spend defending their labels? Defending labels that they don't even firmly believe, right? Not everybody is all the way Democrat and not everybody's all the way Republican. Like one of the greatest examples I heard, I think it was Andy Frisella who said it on his podcast, but he talks about 9-11 and he was like, do you think they cared if it was Republicans or Democrats when they flew those planes into the World Trade Center? No, they were going after Americans. Like no one else around the world cares about these labels that we here in the United States want to defend all the time. And so I really, that really sits with me of people are so quick to carry these labels with them and they'll go to the ground dying, defending these labels. They'll end family relationships and friendships trying to defend these labels that they're not real. They're all lies. Like they're not real things, you know? So I want to create content that really helps people navigate through that identity and showing them like we're very complicated creatures, you know, individuals. Yeah. Like we're complex. And, and even then who we are now, we're not the same person. And a year from now we, we evolve, we, we change like who I was last year, pre pandemic. I'm a completely different person now. Today on The Climb, Bob and I are joined by Katrina Gazarian, and you don't have to go too much further than her landing page on LinkedIn to understand that she does shit that matters. She is voted the funniest in fifth grade, <laughs> Forbes top social media influencer of 2020, a Gen Next member, CEO of Game Day HR, and so much more. Katrina, we're excited to have you today and welcome. Thanks. I mean, gosh, I am like such a badass, you know? I was I was going to say, you sound pretty important. <laughs> you know, you're not supposed to read like the voted funniest in fifth grade part as my bio. That's just <laughs> like a joke that I have on LinkedIn. <laughs> well, but, you know, maybe let's start there. I mean, your sense of humor developed early. Why were you so funny in fifth grade? Well, like chubby people have to be funny. Like, you can't be chubby and lame. Like, it's against the law. And so I learned at a very young <laughs> age, if I was going to be a little huskier than the rest of the kids, I was going to have to at least, you know, make people laugh so they didn't call me fat girl names. And it totally worked. You know, well, I might have had a little experience in that, too. Oh, were you chubby? I was chubby kid. I'm still chubby, but I was funny and, you know, and I had a pretty... <laughs> never grew out of it. <laughs> I, a, I was funny and I had a pretty good right hook, too. So if I couldn't make them laugh, then I got tired of it. It was it was go time. Oh, yeah. Same here. I was definitely beating up, like, the boys. There you 100%. go. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So funny in fifth grade. G give us the background. Give us the you. I mean, why, like, why would fifth grade even have these like superlatives, you know, like we're way too young to have something like that. But for some reason, our trendy, I don't know who she was, teacher decided to put these like titles in there. And, you know, there were other, there were like friendliest and best dressed, which sure as hell wasn't me. And most like most athletic, which wasn't really me either. And so I kind of weighed all the options and I was, I thought funniest was like the one I could actually go for. And so I started lobbying all the kids to like vote for me and it worked. I ended up winning and they put like a picture of me in the yearbook wearing like a Santa hat and I'm going like this. 
like in the pictures, very flattering. So, you know, I think I always enjoyed making people laugh. It was something that was very special to me. I mean, there were a ton of other things that I did in class or outside of class to be very disruptive and get in trouble. But at the end of the day, people were laughing at me and that's all I really cared for. And so I think going into being an adult, I think, you know, you struggle with your identity a lot when you're like a young adult and you're in your 20s and you have all of these influences telling you who you're supposed to be and how you're supposed to act. I I really like entered the corporate world very quickly. I was 18. I got a job at Washington Mutual. So I was in, you know, retail banking at a pretty young age. And I would like say all the things that was coming like on my mind and out of my mouth. And management would tell me, you're not so like, you can't say those can't things. Can't talk like that, right? Yeah, like, you can't talk like that. I was like very perverted and like, you know, someone said like balls, I'd giggle. I was like that person. <laughs> I still do. It's, <laughs> so, not, it's oh, just too. not going to change. No. <laughs> like the words like percolate, like how do you not laugh at that word or like moist? Come on, like, come, come on. on. <laughs> and so I think I started to go into a box at that point of trying to be what everyone said I was supposed to be. And so I tried to be more proper and professional. And then I I was just depressed, I believe, trying to be something that I wasn't. I was I always felt like ashamed because I would say something that I felt was like funny or it was even the truth. And so I got I ended up gaining like a ton of weight because I was like so depressed about like how I was supposed to act. What what grade was that in? I was out of school at that point. Yeah. So I was 18, 19 years old. I go to the doctor and I had been there a couple months before. And he was like, do you know how much you weighed the last time you were here? And I said, yeah, like 145. And so he said, do you know how much you weigh now? And I'm like, you know, 150-ish, <laughs> like 155. And he was like, you weigh 170. So I had put on 25 pounds in a very short period of time. And that was, that was very unnatural for me. You know, I was, I worked out, I, go to the, I went to the gym throughout high school. And so I ended up, you know, kind of getting back on track. And then I started to identify like, why am I so unhappy? Like, why do I just want to lay around and eat and like do these things? And it really started to come out that people were just telling me who I was supposed to be. And I ultimately was not happy being that person. It also wasn't really getting me anywhere. And so I was supposed to get a promotion. I didn't. And so I realized like, why am I being everything you're telling me to be? And it's not really getting me anywhere. And that was the start of the rebellion, I would say. I kind of continued. I was in banking for quite some time. The financial crisis hit in 2008. And so half of the branches where I was working at were closed down. I ended up doing an internship for the Detroit Pistons and couldn't find a job for 10 months, which is an extremely long period of time when you've been working since you were 14. And so I started to find like odd and end jobs here and there. Ultimately, I landed a recruiting job. And then I was also coaching high school girls basketball. 
And I think that what really activated a huge part of me that had been pushed down or hidden up until that point, that teaching side of me, the part where, you know, you have to get this group of people. And then in my case was teenage girls to buy into my philosophy. And that was extremely difficult coming in as a new coach, you know, that these, and this was a very affluent private school. And so there was, there were definitely some challenges on getting them to buy in. And by the first season that I was there, they struggled to get people to try out. And so it's essentially you kept everybody that tried out on the team. The, the second season, I had to make cuts and we ended up winning the league championship that year. So I knew I was on to something. I knew I had figured out, like I had turned a part of me on that was getting people to listen and getting people to buy in. And I think one of those things was that my insides were very similar to how I was externalizing things. And so I wasn't the type of person that was going to tell you what to do and not do it myself. And I believe that's how I earned the respect of those teenage girls at that time. When they were running, I was running with them. It was actually my way. I was cheating. It was my way of staying in shape of not having to work out (laughs) later. (laughs) And so when they were playing and they were running, I would run with them. And so I was their teammate during practice when we were conditioning. But then, you know, I obviously would step off the court and coach them from there. But my point was they saw two different sides of me. They saw this like authoritarian side, but they also saw this human side that, you know, I am an example to you and I wouldn't tell you to do it if I wasn't going to do it myself. And at some point I had gotten a position as a recruiter, a third party recruiter, and I used those same skills of matching talent to companies. You know, what kind of person was going to succeed in a co- in this type of company? What characteristics are they going to have? What philosophies and core values are they going to embody? And so one of my clients ended up poaching me. Off, you know, They really loved what I had done for them as a third party. They didn't want to pay that markup anymore. I sure as heck didn't want my company to get all that markup either. And so they made me an offer. I went to go work for them they had a whole like portfolio of businesses. And so I was simultaneously doing HR and recruiting for the entire portfolio, which covered about 400 employees. And, you know, my daughter was two years old at the time and I was a single mom. And I really started to go into an unhappy place again. My mom was a workaholic, still is today, almost 60 years old. You know, she, I didn't really spend any time with her as a child. I didn't, there really wasn't nurturing. There wasn't any, no, there were no, she was not going to any of my games. She wasn't playing games with me on the weekends. Like there was no like intimacy in our relationship. And so I think working all those hours and only having time to like pick up my daughter, take her home, feed her, bathe her and put her to bed, something was missing. I was not happy in that situation. And so I had asked my employer, can I leave earlier and then put her to sleep and then I can jump back on, you know, after that she was going to sleep at like eight o'clock, you know, and they told me, no, it wasn't something that they were open to. And so I gave a 30 days resignation without having any backup plans. I just decided I was going to go independent. At that point, I had learned enough about HR and recruiting that I could probably pick up a handful of clients and just do it on the side. 
So I, about a week into or a week left of my resignation, I pitched them my services and I, you know, let them know you can still keep me technically, um, but it's going to be as a contractor and I'm not coming to the office. And they, they took it. So I actually walked out on my last day of work making like the client 30% more than my salary was. (laughs) There you go. I, this wasn't like a, it just happened situation. It was, I was delivering, right? I delivered all the time I was employed with them from, or even when I was a third party, I provided great work. I worked hard for them. I treated their companies like they were my companies. And so they realized that it wasn't worth losing me over. And that's really the start of game day HR from there. That was 2016. All right. I got to go like way back here. So I want to go back to the identity piece because you talked about that. And I think that's something that would be interesting to understand and how you kind of work through that because, you know, we've had this conversation on this podcast before with others, like the world we're living in. And then it, you you were talking about even like coaching these high school girls. And that's like a time where a lot of people are trying to find out who they are and like talk a little bit how you kind of work through that. And then also maybe... I don't know if it was an influence on you at the time or how you maybe see that influence of social media on that identity as well. I feel like one of the hardest things in life for young women is to find what their identity is. I think that a lot of young girls and women are focused on being somebody else. And at some point, you're, I mean, you're not ever going to be them. I think that a lot of people I, now where I am today, I'm, I, you know, the maturation of me going through, it doesn't, it's not linear, you know, you, you get there and then you get pulled back and you go to the side and then you kind of get there again. And I think that's like the misconception about self-development altogether, right? It's, oh, I've overcome this forever and it'll, and I'm never going to have this problem again. That's just not reality. That you you know you meet you get in a bad relationship or you you know these external pieces are constantly trying to like penetrate everything that you've learned and so for girls I felt like they were always so focused on being something that they weren't you know if they liked Harry Potter they didn't want to talk about it they didn't want to admit it if they you know if they didn't like boys if they didn't want to party, if they, you know, didn't like certain kinds of people, they didn't like fashion. Like I just saw so many of them doing things that I knew was not them. That just wasn't them. And it was doing things to fit in. And if we go back to, you know, Mike, you and I are parents of daughters, you know, it goes all the way back to girls being pressured to have sex, even though they don't want to but they do it because they're being pressured and they want to appear a certain way. And so one of my missions in life is to have those conversations and how do I influence girls and young women to be who they are and to be intentional about their life decisions. You know, I'm a single mom and we, I'm even trying, I'm starting to see that being a single mom is like glamorized. And it's freaking hard. It is hard to be a single parent, but you have Kylie Jenner and the Kardashians who are like, some of them are single moms and it's like their little doll. Why aren't they showing all the other stuff? 
why aren't they showing the part where your daughter has to go with their dad and you're alone and you don't know what is going on with over there. Like they don't show that part. They don't, they don't show the, the time where you have to decide to be in this relationship that you don't want to be in or not see your child every day. Like they don't talk about those things. And so, so what happens is it's like a domino effect. So then girls are not careful about protecting themselves when they are having these relations with men or boys. And then because they think, well, if I get pregnant, it's okay. I can handle it. No, bitch. Can't. It's fucking hard. <laughs> and don't get me wrong. I, I was 25. I wasn't that young. But still, you know, had I had a choice to wait and find like my life partner and have a child, I definitely would have done that. And so going back to identity, it's because you're confused. You have all these people telling you like, this is how your women are supposed to be sexy and fragile and quiet and delicate and love heals. Why? Why would I want my feet to be uncomfortable? Have you seen women's feet after they wear, wear heels? All this stuff, they're <laughs> disgusting. I'd much rather have beautiful feet without like calluses and bunions and stuff. And I don't know, maybe my legs don't appear to be that long, you know, when I go out. I mean, you know what I mean? It's like, why are we like, who likes wearing them? Like who, who likes wearing them? So it's just things like that. We do. Careful. Things- Michael might give you an answer that might be a little weird there. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back to that in a minute. <laughs> so that's identity for me is being intentional with your decisions, like having a decision-making filter, like a system of does this align with who I want to be and who I am today? And I don't think that we do that enough. We, we, we're consumers and we buy shit we don't need that we don't even like. Do you know how much a pair of sweatpants are right now? Like $65. For sweatpants? Good For Lord. sweatpants. Like you go on Instagram and you're just bombarded with sponsored ads of like $6,500 sweatpants, sweatsuits. I'm like... I literally posted a PSA on Instagram. I'm like, can you all please stop buying sweatsuits so we can like bring the price down back to $7 <laughs> where they were before. But this is what it is. This is like trend, right? It's a trend. And so now it's trendy to pay $100 for a hoodie and a some hoodie, sweatpants yeah. that cost, you know, $3 to make. But we don't think about those things, you know? We don't actually look at things and say... Do I actually like that? Louis Vuitton. Their shit is ugly, okay? (laughs) Their monogram is all over. Like, why would... I just don't... Like, do you... Do people actually like, like, the LV everywhere? Like, that is not... I just don't understand things like that. And I get there are some people who do, but let's face it. It's not like a beautiful bag, you know? It's just, it has letters all over it. Like, I don't really see the point, but everybody's getting it, right? Every, the Gucci belts, right? Has two big, like, Gs. Why? Why? I would get it maybe because Desarian, right? But otherwise, like, <laughs> like, why would, like, a Chelsea Kramer get a belt with two Gs on it? Like, two big ones, too. That everyone has, by the way. Like, everyone has it. So we, we're just so unintentional. Like the, we, we're so disconnected with who we are. And, and I believe that identity 
especially moving forward, I think the pandemic people really had to sit with like with themselves and face themselves, like face their marriages, face their children's, like who they children, like who they are as parents, who they are as employees and business owners. I think I'm hoping the hope is that people come out of this with a better understanding of what is important to them in life. You know, that that sort of brand mania, right? I mean, I think that just ties back to the the peer pressure piece that you talked about and that you know, you're just every time you turn around, whether it's Instagram, the news, any, it, you're just bombarded with this information and then it catches on. And this herd mentality, right, of like, I've got to have that because if I don't, then I'm different. I mean, is that that's kind of what you're talking about, right? Yeah. And for people, I mean, haters will say I can't afford it. <laughs> and that's why I say those things. And that's I assure you that is not the case. I can't afford. I've paid thousands of dollars for a purse that I liked, that I picked like what color, the material, what the inside was going to look like, how big it was going to be. I do pay for a luxury purse, but it's a purse that I was very intentional with building myself essentially and having a high-end designer make it. So it's not that I can't afford it. I'm not saying that I can't afford it. But what I'm saying is that if you don't like it, why are you trying to fit in? You know, why, why are we trying so hard to be like everybody else? You'll never be happy. I just feel like you'll never truly be happy trying to emulate everybody else's life. Yeah, I think if you go back to, to the fifth grade comment, you know, I mean, one thing that I've noticed is funny people are smart. You can't be funny if you're not smart. You've got to know where the punchline comes, how to read the room, when to deliver it, when enough is enough and you need to move on. So I think you, I mean, just in looking at your approach to what you post, your conversational style, like you've been influenced by that. And so like, talk about how that whole maturation from fifth grade through struggles in high school through probably one of the hardest things, because I've done it too, starting with like five-year-old girls and trying to teach them how to play soccer all the way up to the level of them deciding <laughs> if they're going to go select or not or go play for high school or whatever. By far the hardest thing I've ever done, but probably one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. Like, how has that played into the core values of today and, and your mission and game day HR and what you're trying to do? I feel the most common core value when you, like when I'm, when I'm funny, right? People think I'm funny, but I'm actually just telling the truth in most cases, right? I'm not, ta- I'm not telling jokes like, you know, two guys walk into a bar or whatever. Like that's not the fun. That's not the part of me. That's funny. I think, I think people find me funny because I just say things that as they're happening or I, I call things out as they're happening or I kind of turn the mirror on people. That was the whole basis of LinkedIn, right? my headline, is that everybody's headline was like conscious leader and investor and advisor and Forbes and this and that and this and that. And I'm like, why do I still not know what you do? Like I'm, I'm reading it, but I still don't know what you do. What do you do? That's what LinkedIn is actually for, right? Like I had, I saw some that's like, good dude. <laughs> First of all, good people wouldn't put that. I, <laughs> I think for me, it was like, 
making fun of everybody else, you know, because everybody was so busy and putting every single accolade that they've ever had. And so I thought, I was voted funniest in fifth grade. Does that, if I just want to see if that matters. So I started putting that. And then, you know, I had CEO of, of a company with employees because, you know, you see all these people kind of diluting CEO and it's like, you know, you're self-employed. There's a difference. <laughs> like CEO is like, you have employees that have, like you have to get them up in the morning to do work, you know? So it was more of just, making fun of people and kind of putting the mirror back on them. I'm sure it made people feel uncomfortable reading it because they were probably looking at their own things and like, wow, she was making fun of me. But to me, it was just not taking myself seriously. Not like putting, I don't know, like when, when you talk to me and you have talked to me in person uh, or not in person, but on other calls, Mike, the way I like type on LinkedIn is the same way I talk in person, even to like the slang. Like instead of this, sometimes sometimes I say this, you know, instead of that, sometimes I say that. And so like, I will, I literally type the way I talk. So people have like this full experience of my voice and the way I say things in this professional post. <laughs> and so for me, it was really being myself, you know, I can tell when people are having someone else curate their content because it all sounds the same. It's like the same format. It's, you know, drop a heart if you agree. And it's like a quote card. If you work, you will get paid. And then there's like 7,000 likes. I'm like, really? That is not profound. (laughs) (laughs) And so for me, it was, I don't want to do that. I I didn't, I don't, that was not who, that's not who I am. I'm not like a blanket generalist, right? I'm very specific with each person. When I have a conversation, I have a genuine curiosity. And so it was important for me in my voice that it came out that way because that's who I am as a person. Yeah. I'm laughing because I'm remembering. So I have a coach that I worked with and he's always been like, and he was actually on the podcast. He's like, you just, you got to be who you are. And like, that was a big thing for me. So actually we have something in common. So like when I was in my mid twenties, I went through a time. So I'm 195 pounds. I was a, a hefty 256 going big through bomb. a uh, big, bomb. yeah, I was going through a pretty interesting time, but it was all around this like identity thing. And he's like, you know, I'm 36 years old and you know, I like to wear my hat backwards. I like to wear, like, I have a Carhartt hat. I like to wear all the time. And I get on these calls and he's like, you know, I don't, I'm not conscious of like, you know, I swear a lot. It's just who I am. It's like, well, you know, people feel that there's genuineness to that and just be that. And you're like, you get in with your clients. You're like, okay, I gotta, I gotta make sure I'm aware of this. And he's like, they'll love you for who you are if they really want to work with you. And that really stuck with me because I think it's really important because it helps you to love your work more too. You enjoy it more. You know, like I'm wearing like a Nike jacket. I didn't, sometimes I'll get dressed up if, if I feel like it, but sometimes I won't, but this is just who I am. I'm not, I always joke around because my headshot, you know, I got like my makeup done and, you know, my hair was like all nice. And so I always feel bad when people use my headshot for promo because then they'll like come on this video and I feel like they get, they got swindled. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I don't really look like that in person. Everybody, (laughs) it was just a picture. 
So even that makes me feel a little uncomfortable because I don't want people to think that I'm something that I'm not, you know, I don't want people. This is, that's why like Instagram is kind of hard for me. I mean, I found my way now on Instagram with like cutting up video and, and it's basically these types of conversations and shorter clips. But when I was trying to do it and, you know, it's like the filtered pictures and like trying to stage my life. That just wasn't me. I hated it. I did not feel comfortable. Like it just wasn't me. And I would cringe like when I would go back and look at it and I would delete it. I would start deleting all these things off. And so it it took me some time to figure out like what I was going to post and what was going to make me comfortable. And essentially it was these types of conversations because this is when I feel most myself when we're having these like unstructured, off-the-cuff conversations. This is when you get real Katrina, you know? You have great hair, by the way. Thank you. Oh, you too. You too. <laughs> Listen, this is my COVID hair. If you look here, I got a little mullet going in the I, back I, right I now. I like it. I'm curious. I'm probably, I'm curious to, it. like the growth phase was probably wretched. And like so you right, to a point no, where it looks really I'm, good. No, I'm, I'm there right now because right now, if I like don't put product, I'm getting, I want to get to the point where I don't have to put product, but right. If I mm. had product right now, it's out like this. You'd have your helmet. No, it if looks I don't have good, product. I like it. So now I I'm, like I'm going to, I want it down here. I keep on, I keep on telling me a fiance. I'm like, I want to look like Bradley Cooper in that movie that he was in with, uh, what's her name? Lady Gaga. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, Stars uh, born. born. There you yeah. go. I'm like, that's what I'm going for. And she's like, all right. I mean, if you yeah, can make yeah, that he work, that movie, <laughs> he's yeah. not a bad looking man. Not yeah. at all. I mean, you just got to lower your tenor a little bit, like your voice. Yeah, a little bit. He was like real deep in that movie. So <laughs> smoking a pack of cigarettes in the morning and the afternoon. Yeah, I'm get, yeah that'll be a good one to get started. Well, enjoy right. your hair while you have it. Because, you know, oh, exactly. <laughs> oh, I'm staying. I'm keeping it around. Hopefully I was going to ask you mentioned before we kind of jumped on. You'd love to talk about your core values, beliefs. Would love to hear about some of that and how that kind of guides you and how you maybe even how you wrote, whether it's life or even in your work too. It's very similar. You know, I think think people think you have this like these set of values for work and then another set for family and another set for yourself. It's all the same. It's all, all, all the values are the same for me across the board. The same values for my company are the same values for me in my life. And and one of them is the first one's family. And that is also for my company. You know, if somebody has a sick family member or something with their kids, I, it's go take care of your family. Do that first. And then, you know, we can address work things. Community is a big one. We, what are we giving back to the community? What are we doing? How are we contributing? Another one is growth. Are we learning something every day? Are we pushing our boundaries to grow or are we making ourselves feel uncomfortable from time to time honesty really important that's that i think is probably the biggest one across the board and even in our branding it's telling the truth having the real conversations talking about the hard things love is really important for us uh, so when you know if we're giving opinions or if you know, we have to make decisions. It's usually what would a loving person do. It all goes hand in hand, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. And the truth, truth is love, but also how, where is this coming from? You know, are you going to say, oh, your jacket's stupid? 
No, because that's not really from a place of love. Now, if somebody asks you, do you like my jacket? Then you can give your opinion of, hmm, I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't wear it. <laughs> so, so what do I have so far? I have honesty, community, growth, love, family, family and joy. So if you're not happy, you have to do something about it. You know, if you're not finding joy in what you're doing, who you're talking to, who you are, we need to make some changes. You know, when when we first got introduced through Gen Next and then got on a call and, and got to know each other a little bit, I mean, I think it's it's very intentional the way that you go about doing things. And that's what stood out to me is, is you're right, with the garbage and the self-promotion and the making yourself look different than you really are on these mediums that we now communicate our value proposition or whatever. Yours was just, it just flipped it all upside down. I was like, this is so raw and intentional and direct. And even though it's got, you know, a funny tagline, like the mission and the purpose isn't funny. It's very intentional. And so I can tell you, just you spent a lot of time and you've been molded by life experiences to come up with these six or seven core values that that really seem to define your purpose. Absolutely. And, you know, with our team, our internal staff, there's this misconception that HR can't be friends with anybody. It's an isolated, siloed department. I personally just would not be happy in a position like that. I am so curious about everything and everyone that if you told me I wasn't allowed to ask you what you were up to this weekend or how your kids were or you know what your favorite sports team is or what do you think about a certain political issue or social issue, I just wouldn't be happy. I would be exceptionally stifled in an environment like that. And so when people found, you know, my friends and like, oh, you're going into HR, they're like, why? Because my personality does not fit this mold of HR that the industry has created Mm -hmm. over the last couple of decades. And at first I felt intimidated, like, am I doing, am I making a mistake? But then I saw an opportunity. And that was even my journey through Gen X, you know, of... I am a little different than a lot of the members that are in Gen X. And so at first you feel discouraged and then you have this epiphany of there's opportunity here to influence people, to give them a different perspective. So you lean in, you can't run away. And that's kind of my filter system. If it scares me, I'm going in. And for HR, for me, even my own team, you know, we have these sessions that sometimes involve tears. You know, last week I gave them some homework. It's sometimes it's just me regurgitating what I read. And I feel like, you know what, my team could benefit from this. And so I, for 2021, I committed to the team that would help them if they were committed to reach, you know, certain 2021 goals, whether it was health, family, financially, professionally, community, whatever that looks like. And so you know, I had them write out these statements of things that they wanted or needed, that they wanted to have or that they feel they needed to have. And so some examples will be to make more money or buy a house or lose weight or get pregnant, whatever that looks like. And then I have them switch it to I am statements. And so 
you switch it to, let's just say, I want to buy a house. You switch it to, I am a homeowner. And then you start, you create this filter of decision-making of what would a homeowner do in this situation? Or if, you know, it's health, what would a healthy person do? And so I had them do this exercise and they, you know, we come to our staff meetings Thursday mornings and they they read these things off to me. And, And of course, I'm so present that I'm like peeling away certain things and kind of navigating through it with them. And I'm pretty sure everybody cried. And I think even myself, I feel their pain. You know, one of them was I want to be financially independent, like from her husband. And I asked her, where does that come from? What does that mean? How do you define that? And it's like, well, my mom always told me that I have to have my own money. And it was because her dad left her mom with like nothing, essentially. And so I told her, so she was doing these like little things like hiding money from her husband, not really telling him how much she was making. And and he found out because they had to apply for like a, a loan, home equity loan uh, or home improvement loan. He's like, whoa. <laughs> no, no this, saint, this saint was just like, I understand why you did that. And I'm like, girl, does that seem like a man who's going to leave you with nothing? Like he wasn't even phased by this. Like he loves you so much that he yeah. was like, whatever makes you comfortable, you do it. He didn't even like pause at the fact you've been lying to him all this time. (laughs) Like he, like, does that sound like a man that's going to leave you with nothing? Why make him pay a price for a crime he hasn't committed? And so we kind of like did this mirror kind of shadow work of, you know, he's not your dad. Your mom feels this way because she has this fear that she went through it and she thinks you're going to go through it. And so I, you know, we did this whole thing in front of the entire team. Everybody's naked and vulnerable, like doing this together. But the text messages that I got afterward, like in the group, it made it all worth it. It made it worth it because we're all that much closer to one another. And now we have this like radical transparency to where maybe another team member is going to feel comfortable going to that team member, having these conversations. They don't feel alone anymore in this, you know? So for me, when does HR do something like that in any other organization? It doesn't happen, right? But I'll tell you this, my entire team, ride or die, they will go to the ground with me if they had to. And that's the type of, and I would do for them also. That's more important. I would do it for them. And so that's the kind of organization or world, a world of workplaces I really want to see. I'm just like thinking about that moment when you're having those type of conversations. How does that work with, you know, maybe new people that are coming in the organization and sitting at that table? Like, are they like, what the fuck is going on here? Or like, how do you prep them for that? Or do you not? I mean, you go through the interview process. You're asking certain questions. The thing about core values is, they're not just things you put on the wall and like pretty canvas, right? You actually have to integrate them into your organization. You have to, number one, they have to be a part of your recruiting process. So you're questioning each candidate. You have to have questions that find out, do they have or prioritize this core value or not? Then the next step is you have to measure them against core values. So a part of the performance review should be how much are they displaying these core values? How often are they? living these. And so 
you can set up something very basic to where, you know, always, sometimes, never. I think I got that from Traction, the Traction book. And it's very simple. It's like if your core value is accountability, which is, you know, taking ownership of everything you do. It's like, Bob, does Bob always do that? Does he sometimes do it? Or does he never take accountability? And then once you have you have this data now, you have to make some decisions, right? If, if this is like a never thing, then we're going to have a problem. You're not going to be happy. I, mean, I can almost guess that you're not happy with the organization if you get never, right? And so that's when we have to have conversations of, Bob, I think it's time for you to move on, bro. Let's go find you another job where you don't have to take accountability. <laughs> So, I mean, that's like the thing about core values is there's so many people that talk about how important it is to have them, but they don't really tell you how to use them, how to build them out, how to integrate them, how to measure against them, and how to really live them day to day. If you can't recite the core values of your organization by heart, they're not strong enough. So looking in at the world in today's lens and, you know, a, a female CEO, a thought leader, having to have worked your ass off to get to where you are and kind of, you know, the there, I guess there's probably whether it's political, external or corporate, you know, some inclusion initiatives that should have just been natural a long time ago, but now there's like Uber focus on chief people officer and, you know, making the workplace more holistic. How do you see that? And is it real? Is it working? What do we need to do? So inclusion, definitely buzzword, diversity and inclusion. And, you know, it's funny, I see these positions and it's like director of diversity inclusion. I'm like, what do they do all day? (laughs) What does that mean? Like, there's no certification for it. Like, I don't know what that means exactly, except maybe a marketing employee. I'm not sure. But inclusion, it's not just racial and gender. It's actually socioeconomic as well. And it's how do you have these frequent touch points with everybody from top to bottom in your organization? And so your initiatives have to benefit every single person. And so I'm starting to see some tools uh, that are launching to help with this. There's a platform called June, J-O-O-N. And what they offer is, you know, organizations have gym membership reimbursements or, you know, I don't know, clo- I don't whatever like perks a, a company could have. What they do is they have companies just set up a budgeted dollar amount a month per employee and the employee can pick whatever they want. So it could be Peloton app. It could be vitamins, it could be childcare, but they get reimbursed for whatever they want because what they recognize was not everybody goes to the gym. And so not everyone is able to access it. And it could be that they can't go to the gym because they don't have childcare. They don't have someone to watch the kids or all of these different, you know, external sources that are keeping you from doing the things that you want to do. And so they figured out a way to make sure that Every employee has access to this benefit. So those are tools that I feel are a lot more intentional in diversity and inclusion, right? These tools are like a platform to where you remove any type of unconscious bias, like biases, and everybody has access to it and everybody could use it. So that's a big one that I've really 
promoted, I would say. I should go set up like a referral partner. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> um, and I'm not, it's not sponsored. But so something like that, I think in recruiting practices, it's important to make sure, you know, you are keeping data of like how many applicants are coming through, what is like the demographic of all of these applicants that are coming through and making sure you have a healthy amount of those people moving on into the interview process in the different scopes, people of color, gender, whatever that looks like. And some of that you won't even know until they get into like an in-person interview. Sometimes you can't tell by names where they're coming from. So one of the things that we do as an organization is we do equal pay analysis. And so we go into organizations, we create these pay ranges for all of the positions that they have and the various you know, senior levels that those positions may have. Then we audit the entire roster and we start kind of plotting dots of where everybody is landing. And so if we see there's a discrepancy, so if an engineer one is getting one is getting paid, you know, $80,000 a year and another is getting paid $65,000 a year. We're going to find out why is there a discrepancy here. And to be fair with most organizations, the discrepancy is unintentional. They're not going and saying, "Hey, you're a woman, so I'm going to pay you less." What's happening is when you ask them why there's a discrepancy, they'll say, "This is what she asked for." And so organizations, number one, have to take a more proactive approach of understanding what is the pay range for this position, regardless of what they're going to be comfortable being paid or not. Like this is what the functions of the position is or are, and this is what the pay range is. And so if she's, you know, asking for less, but you know, the minimum for this position is more, you need to to give her that offer or to stay out of situations like that. So in most cases, it's unintentional. But what I would like to see is all of these organizations that, you know, used their voice and their platform to speak out against these, you know, inequities. Why are they not doing these analysis in-house? I think that that's a good place to start is, are we even an equal pay employer? And start from there and then start moving on to the next projects or the next milestones and being a more inclusive and diverse organization. But they're not really doing the bare minimum at this point. I was going to say, like, what would you guess with some of those organizations? I mean, you're guessing like it would be completely out of line? Yes. Yeah. Not, not only from within the same position, but even from entry level to C-suite, right? The, the wealth gap is going to be tremendous. And so all of this should be banded. Ideally, you want all of these salaries to be banded by a certain range width. And so, for example, from an entry level to mid-level, maybe that looks like a 30% pay range, right? And it should be 30, 30, 30% more to the next, 30% more. But what we're ha- what's happening is we'll see like 20, 20, 20, 20, and then the C-suite is like 250% more. And so that's why we're the wealth, that's where the wealth gap really starts to kind of take off, right? Because now you have someone making 250% more than the person that reports to them. And so, so then when you look at it of if that person leaves, so now this person is going to leave the organization, 
do you think somebody who's getting paid 250% less than them is going to be prepared to take over that role? Probably not. And so they go and start recruiting from outside to bring people in. So now we don't have any upward movement in the organization. So for the highly compensated, though, because that's what they've earned or gotten used to, or they're just part of that, that norm that's been created over generations, I mean, they're not going to take a step back. So do you have more levels in between kind of junior into that to work them up to that level? Or are you saying rework the entire compensation strategy inside the organization? Well, you can take two approaches with it. I think that number one, it depends on what's the stock package going to look like. So I do think that C-suites or highly compensated individuals should have probably a lot more stock options or you know shares. And so I feel like they should be making a lot of their money through that because what they're doing highly is highly dependent on how the entire company performs. Right. So I do think a lot or most of their pay should come from that, which we do see in some organizations, right? Their salary is like 300K, but you know, their stock options are getting them over a million dollars or their distribution. So I still I I do think like that part is okay, but I do want to see like a reset in the wealth distribution. And that could even mean, fine, if you want to keep this person at, you know, $300,000, that's fine. But let's bring everybody up then too. Why not pay, you know, some 70,000 then for someone that's like a little, that's entry level, but they have experience and they're, they're performing really well. Why not get them there? So I'm not saying that we have to cut salary from the top, but what I'm saying is we can distribute more throughout the rest of the ranks. And the company can sacrifice a little more capital or a little more margin to make that happen. And positive that in the long run, it's going to be a lot more effective for them and a lot more efficient. Because when you look at the data of disengagement, 59% of employees are disengaged globally. And so if, and and that could be for a multiple, multitude of reasons. It could be they're, they're not happy at the company or it could be they're having financial issues personally and they're distracted and they're or they have to take on a side hustle because they're not making enough money. Well, imagine if we can eliminate and like squash some of that stress for them because we're going to now pay them a livable wage, a, you know, a wage that they can feel comfortable in. And now we increase engagement, say, by 20 percent. And, you know, on a $5 million company, you've now increased your revenue by 20% just by paying them a little bit more. So in focusing in on on your day-to-day job with Game Day HR, I mean, is that part of the consulting that you're bringing to your clients? Like, tell us about your value proposition, how you get in there and help. How does How does this work? Yeah, each organization is a little different. It really depends on like where they are in terms of evolution and and life cycle of the company. Um, If they're a startup, we're just hitting the ground running, getting the infrastructure built out. Um, This is like the core values, making sure they have core values, putting that into a recruiting system, documenting all of that, helping them recruit for key management positions. And then when they get to a you know, a certain point, it could be six months, a year in, we're going to start collecting data. We're going to do climate surveys. We're going to see how happy is everybody? What do they like? What, what do they don't like? Where can we help elevate certain areas of the organization? So we're just consistently building a system 
where we know what's going on. We're not surprised by anything. We're not trying to guess like what employees want. We actually have the data to show that this is what they need. And we're going to build initiatives around that. Bigger, more established organizations, we're definitely focusing more on equal pay and we're focusing on strategy. So if in, in a lot of cases, our clients have an HR professional that is in, they just don't have enough experience. They know how to do like handbooks and paperwork and things like all of that stuff, but they don't really understand numbers and data. And so that's where we come in. We're going to really come and elevate the entire department. And we're going to help them collect the data that they need in order to build initiatives around that. And so what we're seeing a lot right now is LinkedIn says, you know, you're, you should have a virtual happy hour and you should send them all t- kinds of stuff. I don't know about you guys. I do not want to be on Zoom any more than I am already. And so as much as I like my coworkers or my, the staff members and things like that, I am drained from sitting in this chair and looking in that camera all day long. And so if you ask them first that they actually want to do this, you'd probably find out they don't really care to do it. And maybe it's better that you send them a DoorDash so they can have dinner with their family instead. And so that's where we're really positioning ourselves is what does the data say? How do we how do we find the data? What does it say? And how do we build initiatives that are more intentional with this organization and increase employee engagement? That's really the metric we're looking at is how do we increase employee engagement? And we have to benchmark it first. So we we do the climate survey, we benchmark the data. We find out where the areas of weaknesses are. We present the data to the entire organization. It's a town hall. We said, these are the results of the climate survey. We heard you. You have spoken. And now we want to take action on it. And even some things like little like that of just addressing that you have these areas that you need improvement increases engagement immediately. Because now there's hope. Now they're like, you know what? I think I'm going to stick it out even more. Because now I have people paying attention to, to what I'm doing. And you know now we have an opportunity to maybe turn this around. So it, it's just really what we do. We just, we, we're high level. We go in, we, do the, we find the data, we mine it, and we put initiatives around it. And at some point, you know, we hope the HR team can level up. And we don't want our, our clients to be dependent on us forever. You know, at some point, we would like to kind of come off of the client. And then maybe I've been asked to be like on the advisory board um, moving forward. So they pay me, you know, whatever amount to go to quarterly meetings or something like that. And it's great. You know, you make, I mean, it's, I love what I do because I, I get to see all these different ideas, like different companies, different CEOs and CFOs and COOs. It's a great place to be. I learn from them. I won't admit it, (laughs) but I learn from them. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. What's next for your firm as you look to move forward? So I'm pretty set that I'm going to step down as CEO in 2022. The end of 2022. Yeah. So at that point, we'll probably see, do we want to sell? Do we want to replace me and I move over as chairman or you know what it is that the team wants to do? So in that Time, we are filming a t- whole catalog of courses. So everything that I'm telling you that we do for organizations are, is now going to be in course form. 
to where an HR professional can take the course and know exactly what we do step-by-step with their own organization. So we saw that this was going to be a better way to move the needle instead of asking clients, let us do all this for you. I figured the bigger opportunity is how do we teach already established HR departments how to do it? And so they're going to have access to the course. We have a closed Facebook group right now that's called HR MVPs. And so HR professionals are in it. We're constantly posting articles, job opportunities, any issues. You know, when HR has a problem with an employee that isn't so black and white in terms of what the solution is, who do they go to? You're not going to go to CEO. That person is too emotionally involved. They don't really know what to do. You have to find other HR professionals who have had similar experiences. So we wanted to create this community where people can say, this is what we did. And, you know, we didn't get sued or we didn't get fined or, you know, this is what the react or we did. So don't do it this way. And so just kind of creating this community of HR professionals who want to do better. They want to create happier organizations. So courses are coming up. I believe our first one is already launching in February. I already filmed it and it's in post-production. So I'm taking a hiatus from the podcast actually in February. So I'm going to wrap season one. And I'm really going to focus March, April, May on building out these courses. And so those will go to market June, July. And then from there, it's just... We have our culture quiz that we launched. It's a 12-question quiz that organizations can fill out. And it spits out, you know, we have the formula in there and it spits out their grade, what their culture grade is. And then they kind of get put into a funnel of emails to where we're trying to close them on an audit and help them out with their culture. Is that culture grade derived from the core values that you help them establish on the front end? Or how how does the algorithm work to spit out the score? So it's basically, well, the first question is, Do all of your employees know your core values? One of my core values is freedom. And so being a CEO, which is probably the biggest misconception that people have, there's not too much freedom in being the CEO. You are answering to clients, partners, investors, employees. So I always laugh when I see like the become your own boss and you don't have to answer to anyone. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. So I feel like that's not true. We answer to everyone, like all the time. And so I'm a very creative person. Writing is something I really enjoy. And creating content, as you have seen, is something I really enjoy. Yeah, so the CEO role is not freedom for me. Even though I love it and I've enjoyed it, it's not sustainable. It's not a sustainable position for my happiness. I like to be creative. I don't really necessarily want to worry about you know our profit margins and things like that. And so um, I'm in the middle of writing a sitcom and a documentary that I've already kind of talked to uh, several production companies about and they have a high interest in it. So I think 2022, I'm really going to go all in on trying to enter like the motion picture industry. Very cool. Yeah. I think um, as, as a mom to a daughter, there's not a lot of things on TV that is depicted as like 
reality that I would really want my kid to watch. Um, the way women are being portrayed, it's either they're like gossip loving fashionistas or they're rape victims. We're not seeing a lot of, you know, anything in the middle of the spectrum, like women who are ambitious or aggressive or, you know, playing all, having all to wear all these hats all the time. I just really, I think it's important. A message that is really important for me is to be yourself and curate your own life and find your own identity. And so I, I, one day I was complaining about it. I just don't like the Kardashians (laughs) and I'm Armenian and I don't like them. I just think like they don't do a service. It's a disservice to girls in my opinion, everywhere that you're setting these standards of like what they're supposed to look like. And they don't really look like that. And I think that really bothers me because I, I worry for my daughter. I worry that she's going to think she has to wear these things and do these things to her face and to be considered beautiful. And so, and Mike, I mean, feel free to chime in if you feel the same or if you have the same concerns. So I was complaining about it. And then someone was like, why don't you just do something? And I was like, okay, maybe I could. And so I started talking to, you know, senior VPs of production companies. And there's, I have one executive summary that is, I don't like salad. (laughs) And it's really just like pushing back on what women are supposed to be. You know, we're not like women are supposed to like eat clean and be small and fragile and proper and soft. And it's like, no, we could do, we could be all of it. Sometimes I'm aggressive. Sometimes I am dainty. Sometimes I'm like super assertive and sometimes I get bullied. Like we're not all one thing. None of us are, right? We look at 2020, how much time did everybody spend defending their labels? Defending labels that they don't even firmly believe, right? Not everybody is all the way Democrat and not everybody's all the way Republican. Like, would you, I mean, not everybody's 100%, but you're so like, defensive about like, you know, Democratic and Republicans. And one of the greatest examples I heard, I think it was Andy Frisella who said it on his podcast, but he talks about 9-11 and he was like, do you think they cared if it was Republicans or Democrats when they flew those planes into the World Trade Center? No, they were going after Americans. Like no one else around the world cares about these labels that we here in the United States want to defend all the time. And so I really, that really sits with me of people are so quick to carry these labels with them and they'll go to the ground dying, defending these labels. They'll end family relationships and friendships trying to defend these labels that they're not real. They're all lies. Like they're not real things, you know? So I want to create content that really helps people navigate through that identity and showing them like, you're not any one way. We're all, we're very complicated, like creatures, you know? Individuals. Yeah. Like we're complex. And, and even then who we are now, we're not the same person. And a year from now, we, we evolve, we we change. Like who I was last year, pre-pandemic, I'm a completely different person now. And so what am I defending? Am I really going to spend so much time defending labels that I'm not even really going to identify with in a year? So that's really what the content is for me. That's the project after being the CEO. 
It's now, exciting. Back to your comment. I mean, yes, with two daughters, my wife and I spend so much time just focusing in on our family core values and really just saying, you know, did you have a good day today? Why? And if there were there were struggles or somebody upset them or a friend group wasn't nice, you know, it was we don't focus so much on on that. It was, well, what role did you play in that? Were you you? If you were you and you were a good person, then don't worry about the outcome or what they thought of that. Just continue to be you. They're either going to come back or that's probably not somebody you need to associate yourself with. It's very simplistic, but it's got to be reinforced all the time because to your point, they're constantly changing and they're constantly evolving into who they're ultimately going to become, but they can get sidetracked so easily. Yeah. And it's interesting because I mean, you two, I would love your opinion on it. When you've put in so much work to dig in and unravel yourself and untangle yourself from all these beliefs that you thought you were or wanted or these traits, you know, for a long time, I thought that I couldn't love the way that normal people loved. And so this is going to, this is probably a little personal, but like I was neglected as a child, like criminally, like criminally these days, especially with millennials and Gen Z, like my parents would be in jail for the lack, I, you know, my basic physical needs were not being met. And so when you have that experience, you're in survival mode all the time. And so you don't really have the time to feel. You just do, you just find your next meal or, you know, you're scanning the place to make sure like predators aren't around or you just don't really have time to sit in it. You know, you're constantly on the move. And so... I always believed that I just was missing like an emotional stem. Like I didn't have something there. Like somebody could say something to me and I was, I could be completely unaffected by it. Or, you know, I was, I was in relationships and, you know, they, I just didn't love them the way that they love me or at least what they, what appeared to be love at the time. And so I always believed in like this thing, like something was wrong with me. And then I really had to do the work of figuring out that actually the love that I have for myself is so grand that the problem is I'm not willing to accept anybody else's love with conditions. I wasn't willing to allow someone to tell me who to be or what I can do for them to love me because I had generated so much love for myself and, and my, my daughter, obviously I didn't need it. I was already full. And that was a huge break. It was a very emotional breakthrough for me because all these years I felt like something's wrong, like something's wrong with me, but it's like, no, they were just, they had done things that, you know, crossed my safety threshold and made me feel unsafe. And so I go into survival mode. And when I'm in survival mode, I have very little to give you because, you know, I feel like I have to protect. And so doing all that work or doing that work, I feel like now it's very easy for me to, to see and like re look at people and say, oh, there's a discrepancy there. Like they say this thing, but their actions are not saying that thing. So it's very easy for me to see it, which is sometimes bad. 
because you know if it's like a real like a friend's boyfriend or something and i'm like oof yeah that's Watch gonna be a tough one, one. Uh-huh. yeah is that my place to say something or not <laughs> right yeah so i think just doing that work is so important for everybody to find out who are you who are you now and who do you want to be and how do we close that gap and 100% of the time closing that gap is not allowing anybody else to tell you who you're supposed to be. How would you tell people to start that kind of journey? Because I think there's a lot there. I'm a firm believer in that, you know, kind of falling in love with yourself before anything else. Like, where would you tell people to start? I mean, I think a high level, even just reading a book that really focuses on that, like Byron Katie's book, Loving What Is, it's like an easy place to start of like you have, you're angry, you know, your mom neglected you and now you're angry because you think she doesn't love you. And so the work kind of like flips that around and makes you see things differently. It kind of helps you navigate through these lies, like not necessarily, she didn't necessarily not love you, right? We, we don't know if that's absolutely true. It's just, she was going through some other things, right? And so it starts to humanize these people that have hurt you or that you feel have hurted you. And then you realize you're just in it by yourself. Like they don't care. They're going on with their day. They're not affected by like your thoughts or your triggers or anything like that. So I would start, I think that's a good place to start. Byron Katie's book, or even if you want to go more simply, uh, Don Miguel Ruiz's books, like The Four Agreements, Mastery of Self, Mastery of Love, and or any book that is really focused on inward, like understanding or peeling away these lies that you keep telling yourself and recognizing. So one of the four agreements is being impeccable with your word. I would say that's the hardest for anybody. And this isn't like an integrity thing. This is just like, are you being honest with yourself and are you being honest with the people around you 100% of the time? And so this includes if Mike asked me like, Hey, you know, we're going to be moving this weekend. Do you think you can come help? And if my initial reaction is like, Oh, I don't really want to do that. You know, being, if I were impeccable with my word, I would say, do you think you could find someone else <laughs> to help you? Because then I'm going to go help him. And now I'm going to be resentful, right? And there are people who would gladly help, who have no problem packing up furniture and carrying it around. And so that's what I think starting there of recognizing where you're not being honest with yourself is a great place to start. No, I like that being impeccable with your word. I think, you know, words matter. And and I'd, I'd be curious to get your perception on this as you were going through this this self-reflection and work, like what role did realizing you were the mother to your daughter play in that? Because for me, it was like, you know, they're dialed into every word that I'm saying when I'm around them. And I need to be very conscious with that because they're little sponges. And that ultimately is going to affect their viewpoint, their maturation, the way they interact with others, the way they see me interact with their mom it's all very intentional because I'm trying to set a good example. So talk about that personally with you and your daughter. Yeah. I mean, I do co-parent with her dad. And so one of the things is 
you know, like when him and I are having a, a disagreement, it's, I really pressure him to speak to me in a respectful manner. And especially in front of her, because I explained to him, little girls look for their dad when they grow up. And would you want her to look for somebody who is disrespectful? No. And so, and then another thing for me on my end is the relationships that I'm in. Like, am I in a relationship with someone that I would approve my daughter to be in? And so my daughter is so dialed in to me, like being her mom that, you know, I was in, you know, I've been in a relationship before. Like if she's at some point, they got aggressive in some way, whether it's they yelled or they just called me a name or whatever. She was like done with them. Like she wanted nothing. Like she was fine. Like she'll be nice, but like she was done. Like she, you lose her in that instance. And in a way I'm proud because I taught her like, this is not okay. But at the same time, I'm like these poor guys, like she, (laughs) she, she's going to be a beast when she gets bigger because she's like abnormally tall for her age. And so I'm just, I, I'm proud, but at the same time, I'm very cognizant of how do I speak? How am I letting men speak to me and how am I letting them treat me? And how do I let them treat her? And how do I, you know, even with her dad, you know, it was like she wanted a blue bike and he told her she had to get a pink one. So like things like that, where I tell him, hold on a second. She doesn't like pink. She prefers blue because mommy's favorite color is blue also. So when you tell her it's wrong, she now is, it almost creates a distrust with me because now she thinks, well, then mommy's wrong for liking that color too. And then you create these lies around her, you know? And so it's really important. Like I'm super honest with her. I tell her the things that maybe other parents, like I don't shelter her from, from the truth. You know, if she has questions about homosexuality, if she has questions about racism, if she has questions about sex, like not necessarily action, she's too little to understand it, but more so like dating. And, you know, she sees like these teeny bopper shows and they're kissing. And what does that mean? Um, I'm very intentional with explaining things to her because if I don't, she's going to make assumptions and God knows where she's going to get those conclusions from. And I think that we do our kids a disservice. Like my parents did. They never talked to me about stuff. Like they never talked to me about my period even. I thought I pooped my pants when I started my period because I didn't know what was going on. I was like, wow, I really did a bad job wiping my ass last time I went to the (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like no one told me like no one told me it's like when it, when you started it's like not actually red it's like a different cult like no one tells you like why didn't anybody tell me those things and so I'm sitting I was at a commercial audition I remember with my dad and I was mortified I didn't want to do the audition because I'm like dad I think I pooped my pants like something's going on like no and my dad didn't know right he's like yeah he had no idea he's like what yeah like what are you talking about <laughs> and so I feel like we do a disservice to them like when we don't talk to them about things that they're really going to be exposed to by other people. And that does include drugs and sex and toxic friendships and weight gain and and puberty and hair. You know, like you have to have these conversations with them because they're going to be left to their own thoughts and their teenagers and kids. And I mean, I I know what I was thinking when I was younger. (laughs) Um, I would rather have someone kind of w- held my hand and walk me through like 
how to make decisions, you know, like not to have sex at a young age. And this is why you shouldn't. And they won't like you more if you do. And if you're not comfortable, don't do it. But if you are comfortable, here's how you protect yourself. And you know what I mean? Like having those, like you have to, you have parents need to be the ones to expose them to this type of like real life. You know, of all the hundreds of presentations and boardrooms and stressful negotiations that I've been in throughout my career, I've never been more nervous than when my wife said, when you get home from work today, we're sitting down with your oldest daughter and having the discussion. And I mean, I like it was the worst buildup. I mean, I'm sure my heart rate was 170 plus the whole day. Like I was sweating. It was one of the best experiences of my life because, and, and my wife coached me through this, we were just completely honest and and turned into it and had the conversation. And it set a tone that she can talk to us about anything. And as long as she yes. comes and talks to us and we hear it from her, whether you made a bad grade or you made a bad choice or whatever the situation is, you're not going to get in trouble if you just come talk to us. And it's pushed its way down to younger daughter. She feels the same way. And so it's just this open, honest environment that they can be in and know they can tell us anything. And together as a family, we're going to figure it out. It's so, it's so important. It is. And that's all life, right? Like you, your friends, your family, your employees, like you should be able to have conversations about life with anybody and be honest about it. You know, there's like, you can't talk politics at work. It's literally in handbooks that it's prohibited to talk politics. And I'm like, why? Why can't I, you know, I'm not going to sit here and lobby for any kind of vote, but why can't we, like, you, if, if people are afraid of who's going to take office, why, why can't we address that? Why can't we like ask our employees, Hey, what is scaring you about this situation right now? And how can we support it? It just doesn't make any sense. Like, why are we keeping these like really important conversations out of the place that you're spending most of your awaking, like wake time at, you know? I think you have so many people there. Like we were talking about this and I said, the problem with it is, is most people are, you know, when you get in those conversations, everyone just goes to their views instead of me asking you, Hey, like, okay, like, let me understand your view a little bit more. Like, talk me through that everybody just goes right to the defensive. And then that's where you create these, you know, these strains and these issues in the relationships. Because they're too busy defending their label, right? Now I'm a conspiracy theorist. Now I'm QAnon. QAnon. By the way, there's some of these conspiracy theories might be some of the best reading I've oh ever my done gosh. in my life. <laughs> I mean, it is the best. I mean, if you want to just to laugh, you just get it and get in there and you listen to these and you're like, huh, how did you come up with that one? <laughs> they target a very specific group of people for these theories, right? It's usually the people that are not considered like the top 10% of the intellect of the country or even, you know, socioeconomically. This is like, even when you go back to like racism, the parties that were pro like slavery, they were targeting poor white people right? They're creating this hate, this like scarcity mindset that like, well, I don't want them taking what we have, you know? And they kind of do it the same. It's the same thing with like the border at this point. It's like, they're going to come take our jobs. And I'm like, 
you were born here. You have all the opportunity. And if you're worried that someone who crossed over yesterday is going to come and take your job, you're not, like, you're not working hard right. enough. Yeah, like, <laughs> right. You know, and it, it's just things like that. Like they, they're, they know what they're doing. They know that they know like the right people to target who are not going to have the intellectual capacity to number one, question what is being told to them. And number two, understand the repercussions of doing something moronic, like trying to, you know, break into the Capitol and do all the things that they did. Like they just don't have that type of intellectual capacity to make those sound decisions. And it's really unfortunate because they don't realize that they're all victims. No, I mean, that's why we're so passionate about this podcast and just bringing the truth and getting somebody like yourself to just come on and and tell us like it is because there's so much influence. There's so much noise. There's so much false crap out there. And I go back to one of the, the briefings. It was, I guess, maybe towards the end of last year. It may have been in January for Gen Next where a gentleman came on. He's been very successful in understanding algorithms and he's got, you know, 1.2 million followers now. And he, he's figured out how that all works behind the scenes. He said, but what you don't realize is every conspiracy theory going back as far as we can track. I mean, go back to walking on the moon, JFK assassination, 9-11. You could add 15 more on there. A third of the population believes in some kind of conspiracy theory around those. And mm-hmm. why is that? Mm-hmm. You're talking about Mark Manson. Yeah. 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 I was, I, I just, that number really shocked me. I didn't, right? I didn't think it was that near that high. I would have thought I don't 8%, know if they, like, 10%. I don't know if they like believe it. I, I mean, it, I mean, this could be all subjective because like when some of the stuff was coming out like last year, like, you know, the Bill Gates mm-hmm. theories of, I'm not, yeah. I would be lying if I didn't say that I had some, like strong yeah, feelings like, about it. I'm like, is this happening? <laughs> you know, like I mean, and I I would consider myself to to be like educated, like in the and how to to research and find out like the truth about things. But I was still like, huh, like this could make sense. Like I could totally see that happening. You know, so I don't know, like to what level when they say belief is right, like. To what level are they believing it? I don't, 33% seems pretty high. I mean, I'd rather see a number of like, how many people take action on it? Mm -hmm. Right, and those people, sure. yeah. It sits true here, a third of us. I mean, I'm a flat earther, so I believe in that. You know, the earth is (laughs) flat. I mean, come on. Right, (laughs) just keep walking. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) So, Taking it back out, we've we've gone very granular and we really have enjoyed jumping down a lot of these thought processes with you. But pulling it back out for a second, a, a question we like to ask a lot is, you know, there's the saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And we flip it around and say, it's not who you know, it's who knows you. So in using this podcast, this medium, whether it's to your loyal employees and how much they've helped you along the way the clients you picked up, your daughter, the world, whatever, like just what do you want people to know about you? I want people to know that when I was born, I was supposed to have six fingers on both of my hands. (laughs) 
All right. And so I just want to say I was born with these like big hands and it was to hold a large piece of the world in them. Yeah. Like if you look, you see the nub there. Okay. Yeah. I know you wanted me to be profound, but I just don't that's, feel like it. That's pretty profound. <laughs> we'll take it. We will absolutely um, take as- it. Aside from that, I, I think I want everybody to know that you are perfect the way you are, whether it's my daughter listening or it's you two or clients or employees or just, you know, your, your listeners, like you are perfect the way you are and only you can make yourself better. And that's it. See, I can do profound. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. It was a awesome conversation. We enjoyed it. Probably ask you to come back. Like we're going to ask everybody to come back in a year and have some more conversation. We definitely had a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you guys. Yeah, we want to hear more about the the sitcom and the documentary and where that takes you. And definitely stay in touch and and come back and join us again. I will. Thank All you right. guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Climb. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing. And if you know someone who you would think would enjoy the podcast, feel free to share this with them. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.